0: section eight of a book of scoundrels by charles wibley this librivox recording is in the public domain gilderoy and the sixteen string jack part two sixteen string jack the green pig stood in the solitude of the north road its simple front its neatly balanced windows curtained with white gave it an air of comfort and tranquillity. The smoke which curled from its hospitable chimney spoke of warmth and good fare. To pass it was to spurn the last chance of a bottle for many a weary mile, and the prudent traveller would always rest an hour by its ample fireside, or gossip with its fantastic hostess. Now the hostess of the little inn was Ellen Roach, friend and accomplice of Sixteen-String Jack once the most famous woman in England, and still, after a weary stretch at Botany Bay, the strangest of companions, the most buxom of spinsters. Her beauty was elusive, even in her triumphant youth, and middle age had neither softened her traits nor refined her expression. Her auburn hair, once the glory of Covent Garden, was fading to a withered grey. She was never tall enough to endure the encroaching stoutness with equanimity. Her dumpy figure made you marvel at her past success, and hardship had furrowed her candid brow into wrinkles. But when she opened her lips, she became instantly animated. With a glass before her on the table, she would prattle frankly and engagingly of the past. Strange cities had she seen. She had faced the dangers of an adventurous life with calmness and good temper. And yet Botany Bay, with its attendant horrors, was already fading from her memory. In imagination she was still with her incomparable hero, and it was her solace after fifteen years to sing the praise and echo the perfections of sixteen-string Jack. How well I remember, she would murmur, as though unconscious of her audience, the unhappy day when Jack Ran was first arrested. It was May and he came back travel-stained and weary in the brilliant dawn he had stopped to one-horse shay near the nine-mile stone on the hounslow road every word of his confession is burnt into my brain and had taken a watch and a handful of guineas i was glad enough of the money for there was no penny in the house and presently i sent the maid-servant to make the best bargain she could with the watch but the silly jade by the saddest of mishaps took the trinket straight to the very man who made it and he suspecting a theft had us both arrested even then jack might have been safe had not the devil prompted me to speak the truth dismayed by the magistrate i owned wretched woman that i was that i had received the watch from ran and in two hours jack also was under lock and key yet when we were sent for trial i made what amends i could I declared on oath that I had never seen sixteen-string Jack in my life. His name came to my lips by accident, and, hector as they would, the lawyers could not frighten me to an acknowledgment. Meanwhile, Jack's own behaviour was grand. I was the proudest woman in England, as I stood by his side in the dock. When you compared him with Sir John Fielding, you did not doubt for an instant which was the finer gentleman. And what a dandy was my Jack! though he came there to answer for his life, he was all ribbons and furbelows. His irons were tied up with the daintiest blue bows, and in the breast of his coat he carried a bundle of flowers as large as a birch broom. His neck quivered in the noose, yet he was never cowed to civility. "'I know no more of the matter than you do,' he cried indignantly. "'Not half so much neither. And if the magistrate had not been an ill-mannered oaf,' he would not have dared to disbelieve my true-hearted Jack. That time we escaped with whole skins, and off we went, after dinner, to Vauxhall, where Jack was more noticed than the fiercest of the Bloods, and where he filled the heart of George Barrington with envy. Nor was he idle, despite his recent escape. He brought away two watches and three purses from the garden, so that our necessities were amply supplied ah i should have been happy in those days if only jack had been faithful but he had a roving eye and a joyous temperament and though he loved me better than any of the baggages to whom he paid court he would not visit me so often as he should why once he was hustled off to bow street because the watch caught him climbing in at doll frampton's window and she the shameless minx got him off by declaring in open court that she would be proud to receive him whenever he would deign ring at her bell. That is the penalty of loving a great man. You must needs share his affection with a set of unworthy wenches. Yet Jack was always kind to me, and I was the chosen companion of his pranks. Never can I forget the splendid figure he cut that day at Bagnig Wells. We had driven down in our coach, and all the world marvelled at our magnificence. Jack was brave in a scarlet coat, a tambour waistcoat, and white silk stockings. From the knees of his breeches streamed the strings, eight at each whence he got his name. And as he plucked off his lace hat, the dinner-table rose at him. That was a moment worth living for, and when after his first bottle Jack rattled the glasses and declared himself a highwayman, the whole company shuddered. But my friends, quoth he, to day I am making a holiday, so that you have naught to fear. When the wine's in, the wit's out, and Jack could never stay his hand from the bottle. The more he drank, the more he bragged, until thoroughly fuddled he lost a ring from his finger, and charged the miscreants in the room with stealing it. However, he cupped he, 'tis a mere nothing, worth a paltry three hundred pounds. "'Less than a late evening's work, so let a trifling theft pass.' "'But the cowards were not content with Jack's generosity, "'and seizing upon him they thrust him neck and crop through the window. "'They were seventeen to one, the craven-hearted loons, "'and I could but leave the marks of my nails on the cheek of the foremost "'and follow my hero into the yard, where we took coach "'and drove sulkily back to Covent Garden.' And yet he was not always in a mad humour. In fact, sixteen string Jack, for all his gaiety, was a proud, melancholy man. The shadow of the tree was always upon him, and he would make me miserable by talking of his certain doom. I have a hundred pounds in my pocket, he would say. I shall spend that, and then I shan't last long. And though I never thought him serious, his prophecy came true enough. Only a few months before the end we had visited Tyburn together. With his usual carelessness, he passed the line of constables who were on guard. "'It is very proper,' said he, in his jauntiest tone, "'that I should be a spectator on this melancholy occasion.' And though none of the dullards took his jest, they instantly made way for him. For my Jack was always a gentleman, though he was bred to the stable, and his bitterest enemy could not have denied that he was handsome." His open countenance was as honest as the day, and the brown curls over his forehead were more elegant than the smartest wig. Wherever he went, the world did him honour, and many a time my vanity was sorely wounded. I was a pretty girl, mind you, though my travels have not improved my beauty, and I had many admirers before ever I picked up Jack Ran at a masquerade. Why, there was a Templar, with two thousand a year, who gave me a carriage and servants while I still lived at the dressmaker's in Oxford Street, and I was not out of my teens when the old Jew at St. Mary Axe took me into keeping. But when Jack was by, I had no chance of admiration. All the eyes were glued upon him, and his poor Doxy had to be content with a furtive look thrown over a stranger's shoulder. At Barnet Race's, the year before they sent me across the sea, we were followed by a crowd the live-long day, and truly Jack, in his black satin waistcoat laced with silver, might have been a peer. At any rate, he had not his equal on the course, and it is small wonder that never for a moment were we left to ourselves. But happiness does not last for ever. Only too often we were gravelled for lack of money, and Jack, finding his purse empty, could do naught else than hire a hackney and take to the road again, while I used to lie awake listening to the watchman's raucous voice and praying God to send back my warrior rich and scatheless. So times grew more and more difficult. Jack would stay a whole night upon the heath, and come home with an empty pocket, or a beggarly half-crown. And there was nothing, after a shabby coat, that he hated half so much as a sheriff's officer. "'Learn a lesson in politeness,' he said to one of the wretches, who dragged him off to the marshalsea. "'When Sir John Fielding's people come after me, they use me genteelly. They only hold up a finger, beckon me, and I follow as quietly as a lamb. But you bluster and insult, as though you had never dealings with gentlemen.' Poor Jack! He was of a proud stomach, and could not abide interference. Yet they would never let him go free and he would have been so happy had he been allowed his own way. To pull out a rusty pistol now and again, and to take a purse from a traveller, surely these were innocent pleasures, and he never meant to hurt a fellow-creature. But for all his kindness of heart, for all his love of splendour and fine clothes, they took him at last. And this time, too, it was a watch which was our ruin. How often did I warn him, "'Jack,' I would say, "'take all the money you can. Guineas tell no tale. But leave the watches in their owner's fobs.' Alas! he did not heed my words, and the last man he ever stopped on the road was that pompous rascal, Dr. Bell, then chaplain to the Princess Amelia. "'Give me your money!' screamed Jack. "'And take no notice, or I'll blow your brains out.' And the doctor gave him all that he had, the mean-spirited devil-dodger, and it was no more than eighteen pence. Now what should a man of courage do with eighteen pence? So poor Jack was forced to seize the parson's watch and trinkets as well, and thus it was that a second time we faced the blind beak. When Jack brought home the watch, I was seized with a shuddering presentiment, and I would have given the world to throw it out of the window. But I could not bear to see him pinched with hunger and he had already tossed the doctor's eighteen pence to a beggar-woman. So I trudged off to the pawnbroker's to get what price I could, and I bethought me that none would know me for what I was so far away as Oxford Street. But the monster behind the counter had a quick suspicion, though I swear I looked as innocent as a babe. He discovered the owner of the watch, and infamously followed me to my house. The next day we were both arrested and once more we stood in the hot stifling court of the old bailey jack was radiant as ever the one spot of colour and gaiety in that close sodden atmosphere when we were taken from bow street a thousand people formed our guard of honour and for a month we were the twin wonders of london the lightest word the fleetest smile of the renowned highwayman threw the world into a fit of excitement and a glimpse of ran was worth a king's ransom. I could look upon him all day for nothing, and I knew what a fever of fear throbbed behind his mask of happy content. Yet bravely he played the part, and to the very end, if the Toasts of London were determined to gaze at him, he assured them they should have a proper salve for their eyes, so he dressed himself as a light-hearted sportsman, his coat and waistcoat were of pea green cloth, his buckskin breeches were spotlessly new, and all tricked out with the famous strings. His hat was bound round with silver cords, and even the ushers of the court were touched to courtesy. He would whisper to me as we stood in the dock, Cheer up, my girl, I've ordered the best supper that Covent Garden can provide, and we will make merry tonight when this foolish old judge has done his duty. The supper was never eaten. Through the weary afternoon we waited for acquittal. The autumn sun sank in hopeless gloom. The wretched lamps twinkled through the jaded air of the courthouse. In an hour I lived a thousand years of misery, and when the sentence was read the words carried no sense to my withered brain. It was only in my cell I realised that I had seen Jack Rand for the last time, that his pea-green coat would prove a final an ineffaceable memory. Alas! I, who had never been married, was already a hempen widow. But I was too hopelessly heartbroken for my lover's fate to think of my own paltry hardship. I never saw him again. They told me that he suffered at Tyburn like a man, and that he counted upon a rescue to the very end. They told me, still bitterer news to hear, Two days before his death he entertained seven women at supper, and was in the wildest humour. This almost broke my heart. It was an infidelity committed on the other side of the grave. But poor Jack, he was a good lad, and loved me more than them all, though he never could be faithful to me. And thus, bidding the drawer bring fresh glasses, Ellen Roach would end her story though she had told it a hundred times, at the last words a tear always sparkled in her eye. She lived without friend and without lover, faithful to the memory of sixteen-string jack, who for her was the only reality in the world of shades. Her middle age was as distant as her youth. The dressmakers in Oxford Street was as vague a dream as the inhospitable shore of Botany Bay. So she waited on to a weary eld, proud of the green pig's well-ordered comfort, prouder still that for two years she shared the glory of Jack Ran, and that she did not desert her hero, even in his punishment. End of section eight.